0: We all got secrets. I got them same as everybody else. Things we feel bad about and wish hadn't ever happened. Hurtful things. Long-ago things. We're all scared and lonesome, but most of the time we keep it hid. It's like every one of us has lost his way so bad we don't even know which way is home anymore. Only we're ashamed to ask. You know what would happen if we would own up we're lost and ask? What would happen is we'd find out home is each other.
1: The voice you just heard is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, and the quote comes from Frederick Beekner. This is at the start of Dr. Kelly's newest book, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. From the earliest pages of this book, I was captivated, riveted, and profoundly moved. In thinking about what to do to celebrate reaching the milestone 400th episode of this podcast, I knew that a conversation with Dr. Kelly about this book and its concepts would be the most impactful thing I could do. I'm grateful that he has joined me for this authentic and profound conversation. The book is about the unhiding of Elijah Campbell. Today's conversation is even deeper than that, as Dr. Kelly and I both vulnerably reveal some elements of our own unhiding, which might provide you, the listener, with some keys to your own personal evolution. This podcast was originally created to spotlight all the ways that the Cutco Vector Marketing community is changing lives throughout the world. Every so often, we'll reach outside of our community to bring you someone who has changed my life. That's just what you'll get today with Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am incredibly honored to have Dr. Kelly Flanagan as my guest today. Dr. Kelly is a clinical psychologist. He has been involved in writing since about 2012. He's written three amazing books, and the last one is called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. I just finished this book a couple weeks ago, and before I was even halfway through it, I was so powerfully moved by the book that I knew I had to reach out to Kelly to have this conversation today, and not only to record this for the podcast, but to make this a milestone episode in the history of this podcast. This is episode number 400 and I'm very grateful to be joined by Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Kelly, welcome to the podcast, thanks so much.
0: I am honored to be here and especially honored for number 400, thank you.
1: That's great. Well, uh, give us a little bit of your personal background to start.
0: Well, so uh, let's see, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, uh, Ronald Reagan's boyhood hometown actually. Uh, Went off to to the University of Illinois for undergrads, studied psychology, Uh, went on to Penn State for graduate school in clinical psychology. On the very first day at Penn State, I met this lovely woman. Her name was Kelly, spelled exactly the same way. And, uh, and she wrote home to her mom and said, hey, I just met this great guy, but his name's Kelly. It can never work out. <laughs> um, it worked out. It worked out. We got married in graduate school, had our first son, Aiden, in graduate school in, uh, in 2003. And then we went on to have two more kids, Quinn, uh, son Quinn, and then a daughter, Caitlin. Aiden is now 19 years old and off living in Chicago and chasing his dream of becoming a stand-up comedian. Uh, We are, at this point, not entirely sure if he'll show up for Easter dinner, which is standard Aiden. Um, (laughs) And and we are raising the other two still. So we actually, uh, a couple of years ago, moved back to Dixon. I went through this incredible process starting in 2012, as you said. I was a practicing clinical psychologist. I asked myself What are the things that I'm passionate about doing that I've never done? Writing was one of them. I started to blog. My first blog post, Marriages for Losers, went viral. Actually, that was my ninth blog post. It was the first one to go go viral. And, uh, And then I started writing letters to my daughter on my blog. One of them went so viral, she and I wound up on the Today Show, got connected with a great agent, wrote my first book called Lovable, which is what connected me to you and the front row dads community. And then wrote a second nonfiction book. And then, as you said, uh, published here my first novel, something that I have deep down wanted to do uh, probably since I was a little boy, finally got to do it.
1: Amazing. I think that's cool. You met Kelly the very first day at Penn
0: State. Very first day at Penn State. (laughs) And we both both sort of had the same thought, like, well, this is cute, right? But no way. But very quickly, it it turned into way. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sometimes serendipity plays a role in our, our lives,
0: huh? That's right. That's right. We both love Seinfeld too much to ignore each other. That's how we connected originally.
1: <laughs> that was great. So you got into writing through blogging first, the letter to your daughter, which we'll, we'll post a link to in our show notes. so Everybody can check that out. That got you on the yeah. today show and that led you to lovable. And then you wrote through companions. How did you get into writing this book?
0: So True Companions was the, the first book of a two-book contract with my publisher. And the contract said, before this first book comes out, you need to pitch your second book. So it was the summer of 2020. We were in the middle of COVID. I'd just broken my collarbone. It was getting to the point where we needed to pitch a second book to the publisher. My, my agent, uh, Kathy Helmer, said, "Well, you know, what do you got, Flanagan? And uh, I remember I was sitting in my backyard and I was like, I don't really have a lot. I've got, I've got this image of a bridge. And I think I want to write a book about this midlife passage that we go through, you know, where we go from doing the same old things and getting the same old results to, to sort of having to face the fact that we are gonna have to make some changes if we want new results. Mm-hmm. right? And so we have to cross this passage in midlife, this bridge. I don't know. I've always wanted to write a book about the Beatitudes from the Bible, these eight great spiritual teachings, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. So maybe the beatitudes could be the ideas that walk us across this midlife bridge. And Kathy, to her credit, and that's why I dedicated the book to her. She said, "Well, what if the beatitudes were actually real people?" And I was like, "Well, Kathy, that's crazy because it's a nonfiction book. You can't have like real people showing up, but you know, fictional people showing up in a, a nonfiction book." And she said, "We'll sit with it for a month, see what happens." And uh, and so I did. And what I decided over the course of that month is. I could choose a loved, lost loved one from my life, someone who's passed, who sort of represents each of those eight beatitudes. And the book could become a dialogue between me and my loved ones. And in the course of that dialogue could walk me across that midlife bridge um, mm. to a new way of, of living and a new set of values and a new sort of perspective on life. And so we pitched that as a nonfiction book uh, to the publisher. And the publisher came back and said, we think that would be better as a fictional book which ironically is what I've always wanted to do. So it terrified me. And I was like, uh, let me pitch it again as a nonfiction. So I pitched it a second time as a nonfiction book. And again, they said, this would be better as fiction. And so at that point, Kathy said, again, take a month, Flanagan, and see if you can come up with an idea for a fictional book. And Elijah started to emerge from that initial concept. And and uh, eventually, about seven months later, we had a first draft.
1: Wow. And how much of it is based on your own personal experience?
0: Yeah, I get that question a lot. In <laughs> fact, like early on, I have this sort of like surrogate mother figure out in Utah and she called me up one day and she's like, I just started reading The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, but I had to put it down. She said, like, are are you okay? Do you need financial assistance? Like, are you, <laughs> you about to get divorced? Like... This feels too real. And my reaction was, well, good. That's a huge compliment to a fiction writer. It feels real. That means it's it's resonating. And I assured her, you know, 95% of it is entirely fabricated. The themes are real human themes that I wrestle with, but the events themselves completely fabricated. The setting, Bradford's Ferry, where he goes back to his hometown very much inspired by my my little hometown of Dixon, Illinois here. I didn't even try to pretend that this book was not an homage to this town, which I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier. We moved back here. Once I decided I had nothing to hide and I could do whatever I wanted with my life, the answer was, let's go back to Dixon. And so I love this town and that's reflected in the setting of the book for sure.
1: I found myself Google mapping Bradford's Ferry and the, <laughs> yeah. the river, right, that the kids play yeah. at, like look, looking that's on true. the map to see if I could find those things. So that's yeah. pretty cool. So
0: Bradford's Dixon was originally called Dixon's Ferry. It dropped the the, the ferry part at some point. And the, the river that runs through Dixon is the Rock River, uh, not the Sauconook River. Uh, but we are in the Sauk Valley uh, based upon the Sauk tribe. So there's a lot of overlap there in the setting for sure.
1: That's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. Now, one of the recurring themes in the book is the idea that our past is behind us, but it is also always within us can you can you unpack that a little bit
0: yeah well i mean i think as a as a clinical psychologist and now as a a coach for entrepreneurs i mean i i see it in myself i've seen it in my clients for years it's that urge to sort of bypass our past on the way to something new and it sort of manifests as this belief of well the past is behind us you know what's the point in dealing with the past? And my answer to that is, yes, the past is behind us, but we we'll, if you pay close attention and sometimes not even close attention, you notice it's also within us. And one of the clearest examples of this that I often give when I work with couples is, you know, that interaction, that moment in an interaction with your spouse, where you start to feel yourself start, start to tighten up, you know, you're, you feel that seizing in your chest or that you know, feeling in your gut or you clench your jaw. What I'll tell folks is that's actually your past pushing its way into the present, what's happening is you're going, ooh, I don't like how I'm about to feel. This is going to hurt. This is not going to feel good. And I don't want to feel it. So I need to defend myself from it. Mm. And, And when you trace the origins of that moment of that tightening or that closing of your heart, as we call it, we discover that its origins always go all the way back into the past. So one of the things I commonly do with couples when we're working together is that moment becomes the critical moment in the process of, of healing and increasing intimacy. We notice that moment happening, that tightening. And if in that moment, instead of defending ourselves or blaming our partner, we can tell a story about the pain in this moment that I'm trying to prevent and how that's connected to my past and my story, all of a sudden we'd use that moment as a bridge to intimacy rather than this moment of conflict and defensiveness and blame. And so I actually see the past as this really powerful tool for connecting, not something we want to sort of skim over to to get to some future that doesn't take it into consideration.
1: Wow, that was so deep. Just what you shared there in in a couple minutes on, on that quote, that feeling that we get is the past pushing its way into the present. Yeah. And what I know, what, what I do in that moment, most of the time really resembles what you share about Elijah in the book. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. well, I don't want, I don't want this. Like, let me separate myself from this situation as quickly as I can. That's right. Right.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and we have a, we have a range of ways as human beings that we separate ourselves from that moment or protect against it. Elijah's is to hide. Right. And I think that's. A very common one for most of it. We'll we'll discover some hiding going on, some separating, some withdrawing in each of us when we start to notice that moment and how we manage it.
1: Yeah. But the idea is that your idea here is that it's important to recognize that that moment is an opportunity, right? It can be a bridge for you. It can be a way of opening our heart to what we really want or need. Yeah in life right
0: well and think about like think about if, if someone you're in relationship with you can sometimes oftentimes you can feel the energy of that closing and tightening happening in them you can sort of see it happening right and the next thing that happens is you get blamed for that feeling well that's what's that going to do to you it's going to cause you to want to protect versus instead of getting blamed you get a window into a better understanding of their story of how they function, of what they're experiencing in the moment, all of a sudden you have an opportunity for empathy. Like, oh, I get why you close when I do that. That's helpful. I can be more aware of that going forward. It could just be a powerful repurposing of that moment.
1: Wow. And that feels like such a stronger and more powerful connection between two people when you have that. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: And and making it sound easy is, as you know, this moment where typically you would hide Typically you would defend, typically you would attack to change that moment and to make yourself vulnerable in that moment and share more of what's going on with you and your story. I mean, that takes a lot of emotional work, a lot of emotional mastery, but what we're trying to do here is just increase our awareness that that moment is the opportunity, as you pointed out.
1: Yeah. Wow. That was great. Let's talk a little bit about the main character in the story, Elijah Campbell, Mm -hmm. his friends call him Ellie, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Ellie has a well-established habit of self-hiding. Tell us about how this manifests in his
0: life. Ooh. So, no spoilers, by the way. I'm going to try to do this without too many spoilers. So, <laughs> there, you discover about, and it's hard to do. You discover about halfway through the book a traumatic moment that Ellie went through that sort of established the rule of hiding in his family. That hey, loyalty is is hiding. Love is hiding things, right? And so sort of implicit messages sent around that dynamic and so he learned that through his family that when you love somebody what you do is you hide all the unpleasant things so that you don't upset them you hide the unpleasant things so that you don't risk a rift in the relationship and so i think one of the things that i wanted to demonstrate with ellie's character is that hiding isn't this like machiavellian like Ooh, you know, I'm going to scheme and connive to keep myself hidden. Oftentimes it's done with a very sincere heart, right? Right. I don't want to hurt you with what's going on inside of me. I don't want to damage the relationship based upon what's going on.
1: I'm afraid of how you might respond if I share this.
0: That's right. And I don't know how how I'll respond to you if you respond that way. And I mean, ultimately, Ellie is basically, he's decided that his purpose in life is to give Rebecca his wife everything she's ever wanted, right? And he has to start to hide things to, to make that happen, ways that the finances are not working out as well as he's suggesting. He's doing it with the best of intentions. And, and I think that's one thing I wanted readers to come away with is some some grace for themselves and their own hiding that like, oh, I'm not alone. We all do this. And a lot of times we're doing it from a very good place. but it just sort of puts a ceiling on the level of connection and intimacy and closeness and authenticity that we can have in relationships. And we want to raise that ceiling now, right?
1: Yeah. There's a quote that I starred in the book that I think relates here. And it says, uh, our hurts beget hurts and our flaws beget flaws because no one has taken the time to talk to us about them, to look at them to turn them over and study them, Mm -hmm. to become familiar enough with them that we might actually come to have a choice about them. Mm -hmm.
0: Can you Mm -hmm. expound upon that concept a little bit? I think it's a quote that's attributed to Viktor Frankl. I won't get it exactly right, but the idea that between stimulus and response is just the smallest of spaces, right? And in that space is our freedom to choose. And and it, it tends to be the case in the world, most of the time we think stimulus and response are inevitable. They're they're back to back. There's no space in between. But what we discover is that if we can bring awareness to those places where we're triggered and our response to those triggers, if we can bring awareness, what we can do is we can just wedge that space between stimulus and response. We can wedge it apart just a little bit. And if we can get just a little bit of daylight in there, now we have a choice about how we want to respond. And so when I say our hurts beget hurts, our flaws beget flaws, basically, this might be an overgeneralization, but this is how I would sort of say it right now, that most of adulthood is our method of coping with the pain of our childhood, right? And we just have these automatic responses to manage our pain and to manage future pain. And if we can bring awareness to that moment where we're responding, I don't want to get hurt like that again. I'm going to defend like this again. I'm going to protect or hide like this again. If we can just bring awareness to that moment and wedge it apart a little bit, and say, "Oh, I actually have a choice in whether I defend like that. I have a choice in whether I hide. I have a choice, and maybe I can, maybe I can let a little bit of hurt happen this time and learn how to, how to endure it rather than trying to prevent it." So when we slow down and we connect with somebody around these things, we just get the the freedom of that awareness and that choice. I think.
1: Mm. I know this is another one of those things that's way easier said than done. Yeah. Um, what advice do you give to people that maybe have a tendency to react to things rather yeah. than respond? They're very reactive yeah. and they need to work on having that space to create choice. Yeah. How do you do it?
0: Well, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll just give you an example. Um, I am This was a couple of years, maybe a couple of winters ago. I'm in the driveway on a winter afternoon. We've just gotten more firewood delivered, trying to get it stacked before it's dark. I asked my two boys to come out and help me with it. They gladly do. We're getting pretty close to wrapping it up. And they say, hey, Dad, can we go inside now? And I say, yeah, sure. Thanks for your help. Appreciate it. They go inside. And I start to notice over the next few minutes that I'm getting angry at them that they went inside. And then I'm out here alone and it's starting to get dark and the time frame's getting tight. And it but it's one of those moments where you're like, well, wait a second, I told them they could go in. Like the the you know, you can't even self-justify the anger. So there's a little bit of awareness that sort of comes in. You're like, so this is all me right now. <laughs> What's going on? Right. And so the use of the body can be really powerful again. Where are you noticing that feeling? Right. Oh, it's right here in my chest. It's right here in my chest. Mm-hmm. One of the first things we do is that we react, we try to resist that feeling. So the first thing we want to do is we want to resist or reverse the tide of that. Instead of resisting the feeling, we want to approach it. Okay, what's one of the practical ways we can approach it? One of the practical ways we can approach it is to begin to take slow, deep breaths. And then when you feel like you've got a pretty slow rhythm going, actually seek to breathe into and around that feeling. Okay, so I've got this like, you know, tight ball in my chest at that moment to look like to breathe in and sort of like breathe space around that ball and hold it. Now I'm approaching that feeling and I'm not trying to resist it. I'm not trying to get rid of it or get away from it. I'm just holding space for it. I keep breathing around it. What do I notice? Well, it's there's under in there with the anger is some sadness and some loneliness. I feel lonely out here right now. Okay, deep breath does this lonely feeling equate to anything in your story? Like what? Was there a time where maybe maybe you felt this and you uh, you hadn't told everybody it was okay for them to go inside? And all of a sudden I had this memory. I remember it was a blizzard. That was probably fifth grade. It was a blizzard. I think it was a Sunday night for some reason that comes to mind. I'm out in my driveway, shoveling the driveway alone and the rest of my family's in the house. And I'm feeling so lonely and hurt and taken advantage of and frustrated that I'm the only one out here, you know, at nine, 10 o'clock at night, trying to get a driveway clear when the wind's blowing the snow back over it. And in that moment, I go, whoa, yeah, like I, it's the loneliness right now that I'm I'm upset about. And it's not at my boys at all. This is the past pushing its way into the present. And so what I need to be able to do right now is be present for that little boy in me that's feeling lonely. Right. Rather than going in and railing at my boys and getting angry at them and getting them confused. I need to create that space uh, for myself right now to go, Hey dude, you're not alone. You you were that night, but I'm here with you. We're going to finish stacking this wood and go on, have a great night together. Right. And so that was sort of the practice, but I think turning the tide from resisting the feeling that's coming up in you to approaching it and having some method and way of approaching it in your body is really the key in that. That's what slows us down and gives us an opportunity for a new way of relating to it.
1: Turning the tide from resisting the feeling to approaching the feeling. A part of that, Kelly, feels a little bit to me like I've got this bruise on my arm and it hurts and I'm just going
0: to right. poke at it a little bit. That's right. Yeah. Yes. You know, like, why, why, yeah. why? 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 <laughs> why do that? Right. So the, it's a, it's a fantastic question. The experience of resisting pain is sort of the definition of, of what we call suffering. So we often think of pain and suffering as two different things. Pain is the, the inevitable sort of wounds that you pick up over the course of being like the bruises, right. That you pick up and then suffering is the resistance to that pain to experiencing it or to having any more pain. So I do actually do think like if you are really bruised and you are so resistant to it that you're like, well I can't really do anything for a while. I've got to just sort of you know lay down and and wait till this for this thing to recover. You're actually creating additional layers of suffering. You're making your life smaller and more limited. You are preventing yourself from experiencing things. I actually think it would be valuable to go suppress sort of on the bruise and go. Oh, that hurts, but I can I can do life with that hurt. I can still mm-hmm. get out there and exercise today. I can still go out in the driveway and play ball with my boys. Yeah, I can do that. I can, I can handle that hurt. And so what we're we're not we're not trying to like engage in some sort of masochistic like make your pain worse. We are trying to cultivate experiences in which we learn. Oh, I can handle the pain. I can live with it. I forget who who said it. Courage is deciding that something is uh, more valuable than fear, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you could also say courage is deciding that something is more more valuable than painlessness, right? Like, okay, like I can handle that pain, and that's going to free me up to do a lot of things and show up in a lot of ways that I I wouldn't if I was trying to avoid things.
1: Right. That, that sounds like a lot like discipline and. Other areas of life that people do tend to practice well. Like people that run yeah. and know that it's going to be painful sometimes, but they're
0: every time you go to the gym out. and lift lift weights, right? You're actually you're actually tearing <clears throat> muscles and you're creating pain to to make yourself stronger. And so we know that, like, okay, that's pain I can handle. It's pain that's making me stronger. And anytime that we learn that we can can handle and tolerate pain, we're getting stronger.
1: That was great. There's a great lesson in the book about proxies for worth. Ellie received this lesson from his uncle, Mark, about chasing proxies for worth. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that all of us as human beings at a very young age, we essentially come into the world with a, a true self that that knows it's worthy of love and belonging. You know, so these are, the reason kids cry and the reasons they're demanding and crabby is they're like, I know that even when I'm demanding and crabby and I'm worthy of love and belonging they just don't even think anything of it. At some point though, we all get that message, right? Intentionally or unintentionally, that you are not worthy of love and belonging the way that you are. You're going to have to change, you're going to have to adjust, you're going to have to hide certain things about you in order for us to to love you and for you to belong to us. And so essentially what happens is we we develop this this belief that who we are, that what is inside of us is not worthy of love and belonging the way it is. So we have to create a self or act in ways to go out and earn that love and belonging. I often say like, we don't say it consciously ever, but unconsciously we all think, hey, if what's inside of me isn't good enough, then I'm gonna have to go outside of me to prove that I'm good enough. I'm gonna have to find things outside of me that prove my worth. And these are our proxies for worth, right? We, We look around and we go, okay, what am I going to add to me Into my life to prove that I'm worthy of love and belonging to people, a certain friendship group, certain certain uh, wardrobe, certain devices, certain cars, certain spouses. You know, I mean, like it just goes on and on. And uh, obviously, it's it becomes a never ending, unsatisfying cycle because we cannot find our worth outside of us. It's it's inside of us, forgotten and, and hidden. But, uh, but we go through that process of trying to prove it anyways by acquiring things.
1: Yeah, and there's a paragraph in here that I thought was super profound that relates to this. You write, when we're young and we get wounded, we watch for what gets loved around us. What mm-hmm. do our people celebrate? What do they value? What do they treasure? Then we do what we need to do and become who mm-hmm. we need to become in order to be celebrated, valued, and treasured. A good proxy is less a reflection of what we love and more a reflection of what was loved by those around us.
0: Mm. Kids are so intuitive. They're so aware and sensitive. The idea, again, is we're not looking to simply have people cheer for us. We're looking to belong. We want to belong to the tribe, to the family, to the group, to the the peer group or whatever it is. And so it doesn't matter what we think is worthy. What matters is what the group thinks is worthy, right? Because being that, doing that, that's what's going to get us the belonging that we're looking for. And the kids are so intuitive. They can look around, you know, and go... Oh, that's what, that's what everyone applauds here. I mean, they could tell the story in Lovable of beginning to doubt my worth and then receiving my first trophy, a most improved player trophy in like kindergarten soccer. And I just remember standing there holding it and everybody in my family being so proud of me and going, oh yeah, like trophies. I don't think I was that conscious of it, but but the rest of my story <laughs> suggests that I suddenly became aware, oh yeah, trophies are going to be my proxies for worth. And there was actually a day uh, where I ceremoniously, I realized that I had carried my trophies from every move from the time I was in you know childhood all the way through to adulthood, three kids and a wife. And there was a day where I ceremoniously disposed of my trophies as this sort of defiant. Uh, These are my proxies for worth and I'm done with them because what's inside of me is worthy and it was a really powerful day. And so anyways, that's, uh, I think, I think that's what we're looking for is, okay, what is everybody loving? I can be that.
1: Wow. I think uh Kelly this is one of the things that made me feel so passionate about working with uh, Cutco Vector Marketing mm. is you know I I didn't really win anything and I wasn't really great at anything when I was a kid. Mm. Um I was good academically but I wasn't like you know one of the top athletes in in any of the sports or anything like that and then I came sure. to Cutco and I started to be really good and then I started to be even yeah. you know really 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 good and um yeah. it became kind of a a fix, right? Yes. That you get that, hey, That's I'm right. I'm, a, yeah. I'm a star here,
0: right? Well, and I think, I mean, I I ended up clinically depressed in the two or three years after I got my PhD. And I think part of that was the trophies were the degrees. Now, you know, the letters behind my name, you get a bachelor's degree and then a master's and a PhD. But then you go into this profession, which is entirely hidden and and secret. It's, I'm a psychologist. I'm I'm helping other people. There are no trophies for that. You don't get any trophies for for being an outpatient mental health therapist. And I think I was starving for like that that hit of worthiness that comes from the proxies. I didn't. There were no more for me, and, and it really precipitated. Uh, I mean, essentially, my my awakening or my bridge to go. Okay, like this is. I got to break this addiction to my proxies, uh, or I'm going to end up depressed and resentful and angry.
1: Right. So Ellie is chasing these proxies for worth. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be uh, successful in his career. He wanted to do well as a writer. He wanted yeah. to give Rebecca everything that she wanted. But Rebecca didn't want those things. Mm. Rebecca wanted Ellie's truth, yes. right? And how should he
0: have revealed more of that to her? Mm. That's a good question. Well, so, and I'll try not to spoil it again, but I will tell you, tell listeners that in the last about quarter of the book, you begin to get to find out more and more of what Ellie has hid from from Rebecca. I think the challenge to a guy like Elliot, a guy like me, I mean, I actually, so there is something a little autobiographical in what he starts to reveal there. I, I actually remember a day, where. My wife had taken the kids to ice cream after school the day before. And then the next day was my day to pick them up. And they're like, let's go get ice cream. And I'm like, I know ice cream two days in a row isn't sort of what our family's trying to do. But darn it, like, she got to be the cool mom. I want to be the cool dad. So I took (laughs) them for ice cream. And then we get home and everyone's done. And I catch myself. I am literally, I'm putting the ice cream containers way down in the trash can and like then throwing <laughs> trash on top of them. Right. The problem is I got these little rats who are going to tell her that we went to ice cream. So I'm going to get caught anyways. But like, I think we can bring awareness to those small episodes, the small incidents of hiding that we do. And we can ask ourselves, is this worth the disconnection that it's creating in our relationship? Is this worth the, the burden of inauthenticity, is this worth not being known, and the loneliness that happens inside of hiding, because people don't really know who we are. So Ellie has all sorts of those opportunities in the book, I mean, over and over again. And it's not until the very end of the book that he decides, regardless of how she responds, it might be time for him to start telling her more honestly what's been going on with him.
1: Mm. Yes, indeed. I'm thinking about your point about no spoilers. I got a couple questions here. I know, I might, right? I might save a couple here and see if we can weave them in a different way. The metaphor in the story is a bridge. You say at the bridge is those blessed passages from the life we want to the life we need. Hmm. So my question for you is what's on the bridge hmm. and what's on the other side?
0: Yeah. So... I think I became more and more, so as I mentioned, the, the initial idea was this bridge that we cross in midlife. I became more and more aware as I wrote the story that the, the real metaphor was the thing passing under the bridge. I hope This is a spoiler because it's introduced early on. He has this dream in which he's crossing this bridge, but the, the water always rises up and sort of swallows him. And uh, there's this fear of, of that happening, and so he can never get across the bridge. And he wakes up too soon. And, and I became more and more aware as I wrote that the real metaphor here is that water rushing Mm. underneath the bridge, this roiling murky river that you don't know what is in it, but it's going to sweep you away. And, and I started to think of that water as our past, as our pain, as the thing that we have to go through to get to the other side, to be more free, right? Like we, I think I say somewhere in the book, we can either stay on this side of the river and this side of the bridge, and we can continue to sort of do the same things, double down, right? You know, okay, I thought, I thought uh, this amount of money was going to make me happy. I thought this relationship was going to make me happy. I thought this achievement was going to make me happy and it didn't. So maybe I should just continue to do the same thing and double down and achieve more and find a new relationship and make more money. And or we can walk across and traverse that pain to the other side where we start to want and value different things. And so the bridge is really the, it's about the journey through and through that pain to a different, a different vision for life. And if we're not willing to go through it, if we're not willing to walk across it and it can feel treacherous and scary at times, then we just sort of continue doing what we've always done and, uh, and getting what we always got essentially. Mm-hmm. So you talk about
1: traversing the pain of the past and, mm-hmm. and I think there might be a tendency for some people listening to think, what well, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any of that. Like, I'm yeah. fine, yeah. I'm good. And Father Lou gives Ellie advice on that. It's at a moment in the past where Ellie's looking back at giving the valedictory speech mm. at his high school graduation, right? Right. And yep. Father Lou says he wants to make it different. Doesn't want to give the same old speech everybody right. gives. And, and Father Lou says. Everyone has the same grief at the bottom of their hearts. Perhaps by sharing yours, you will give them Mm. permission to feel theirs.
0: Mm, How
1: how do we all have the same grief? Can you explain? Uh, Yeah,
0: that's good. And I do appreciate what you say. I know that there will be folks listening right now who are going, I just don't relate to it. I just don't pain from our past, our past being sort of poignant in some way. it It just doesn't relate. And those are, those are generally the folks who I'm like, oh, this is really important for you. <laughs> if we sort of have to tell ourselves that we were the one who got unscathed through childhood and into adulthood, there's probably a reason we're having to tell ourselves that. So I love those conversations um, and they're always rich and meaningful for folks. But I think in Father Lou's case, I mean, I think in a way he's specifically referring to, hey, this is high school graduation. The grief that everyone is going through is, I mean, this is a huge death of sorts of the the time in life where we get to depend upon somebody and this era of our lives and all of these friendships are going to be going away and everyone's going to have to be starting new friendships. I mean, high school is a real grieving problem. And when you want to like wire 18 year olds, such a handful, sometimes they're grieving a lot. They're grieving the loss of a life. And the, the, the daunting task of building an entirely new one next. Um, we talked a lot about that a lot with Aiden in this past year. I think in general, I think the grief that is at the bottom of every human heart is the loss of our original innocence. And I think it's whenever it happened, four years old, five years old, six years old, that moment where you said, oh, life is dangerous. Life can hurt you. Life is unsafe. And now I need to start to guard against it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would, I would argue that's the moment where we start to transition from children to adults. My coach asked me several meetings ago, it's really powerful. You're talking about something. He goes, Kelly, when did you tuck away your childhood for good? When did you decide? You don't get to be carefree. You don't get to be playful. You don't get to be innocent. You don't get to be those things anymore. And it was a really powerful question for me. And the time that I came up with was actually much later than I thought. The question, when did you tuck it away for good? It was much later in my life than I thought. It was right around the age of 20 years old. And so I think we're all sort of carrying the grief of tucking away our childhoods for good, letting go of that innocence. And there's this part of us that really wants to recover it. And we really can if we're aware that we want to.
1: Mm. So you you write there that grief is the bridge we walk from security into resilience Mm. Mm. right so crossing that bridge the other side of the bridge is resilience it's yeah it's being the kind of person that can openly handle any circumstance and can work through things and can right and be better at dealing with the day-to-day experience of life
0: so and as i mentioned this idea that that the beatitudes these eight teachings From the bible were the things that would walk us across this bridge um the first beatitude is blessed are those who are poor in spirit which seems a very counterintuitive sort of teaching right but in ellie's first conversation with his grandmother what what they explore is the idea that we're all attached to happiness to things going well and us being happy about it right but if we can if we can let go of that attachment to happiness and allow sadness and sorrow to help us release it what we discover is a deeper joy we can be joyful and sad when we're no longer attached to things going exactly the way that we want them to in order to be happy right mm-hmm. so on this side of the river is happiness the loss of that happiness we cross the river to a deeper kind of joy that says things didn't go the way I wanted to today and I can still be joyful similarly as you just pointed out we're all we all start out attached to security we want to feel safe We want to feel like things are not going to hurt us. We want to feel protected. And then if we discover through loss and grief that we don't need things to be safe in order for us to live vibrant, full, healthy lives, that we can live in light of risk and danger and loss, then what we are is we're resilient. Oh, that terrible thing happened. This happened for me big time when I started to write publicly. It was like something terrible would happen to me. I'd be like, oh, I have something to write about. Like life went from, I want everything to go right and to never feel any hurt and pain to, oh, I can redeem this. I can do something with this. I can help people with this thing that just happened to me. And so all of a sudden we've developed this resilience. And so on this side of the river, security. On the other side of the river, resilience, something much sturdier and something much more enduring.
1: Oh, so powerful. I love what you said about being no longer attached to everything going the way we want or the way we think. It should. I often talk about how that, you know, there's seven plus billion people in the world and about Mm -hmm. as many different agendas and desires and goals and wants. And like, we we're part of this giant system where we can't expect everything to be how we want it. Like it just, it's impossible Mm -hmm. for that to actually manifest in real life. Right. If you you have five people in your family, there's five different ways of wanting to operate and ways of wanting to do things. And it takes that resilience and that willingness to not have everything be how we Mm. want it takes that to be a family of five and
0: and operate for you right oh man it's a powerful thing you just said i think of how we often define freedom as getting what we want right that's freedom i want things this way and i get to go make it happen but when you see people who are attached to that kind of freedom i tell you every time that they're the least free looking people ever Right. That that attachment, that holding on to that clinging, that constantly trying to make it the way that I want it in the light of relationships and a world that is is pushing back against that. I often say that, yeah, as soon as you enter into a relationship, you're really not free anymore. (laughs) You are now in love, not in freedom which ironically is a, a constant dance of what are you wanting from life and what am I wanting from life and how can we support each other in getting that thing mm-hmm. in life, right? And, and all of a sudden, uh, loving and caring and being connected and intimate is more important than, than being free and getting what we want.
1: Yeah, for sure. That The last thing you said right there, loving and caring and being connected is more important than being yeah. free and getting what we want. Like yeah. That's just so yeah. profound.
0: Well, and what you discover is that it's it's like freedom with a capital F once you've really surrendered to and embraced that. You know, maybe on this side of the river is freedom. I get I get the things that I want. And on the other side of the river is I'm in a I'm in a dance with the people I love to figure out how we can all move in the direction we want to go. That's a sort of a freedom with a capital F.
1: Super powerful. Wow, that was great. Kelly, there's a quote that I I attribute to one of my friends. In my mind, it comes from a friend of mine named John Wasserman. Shout out, John, Mm -hmm. if you're listening. And it comes from a book he wrote where the idea was that your transparency can aid others' transformation. Mm -hmm. Your transparency in what's going on in your life can help others Mm -hmm. to transform through their challenges. And John Mm -hmm. describes a period of his career where it wasn't going well for him. And that being open about that and Mm -hmm. being transparent is what helped him and many, and has now helped many others to become successful and to do well. The question I have is I thought about that quote is that do do you offer transparency into your own life as you're guiding others Mm. through their challenges?
0: Yeah. It's a great question. So I mentioned that I started blogging in early 2012 and uh, I was an outpatient mental health therapist at the time my colleagues all thought I was crazy because you're trained as a, as a psychologist to be sort of that blank slate. It's all about your privacy. The other person is supposed to be the one, you know, the, the client is the one doing all of the disclosing. So the fact that I was writing publicly about my own personal life and telling my own personal stories, many of my colleagues just thought I was maybe unethical, but certainly that I was um, a little nuts and, and, and probably, um, not going to be helpful to my clients because I didn't have that sort of authority anymore. Was wow, like a little too hum, human, right? And then what I started to experience was my clients would come in and they'd say, "Well, I wouldn't have told you this, but I read in your blog post last week that you go through the same thing and that's such a relief. So here, let me tell you about this, right? Wow. And for me, that's that's when my my decision to sort of go all in, on writing in a way that was transparent about my own journey that's when that really took off you know lovable i think is a book that talks as much about my own journey as it does any of my clients journeys and then that's cuz i think there's something powerful about finding out that other people go through the same things right i think one of the things that's powerful about this novel is is how common we understand hiding to be as a result of it oh okay everybody goes through it and so i'm not unusual or strange i don't need to be ashamed that i do it and uh and so yeah i think i think transparency from myself is is one of the ways that i i try to model that for folks and as i often, I often say hiding didn't ever really go very well for me so um i'm trying something new this transparency thing and it does seem to benefit others as well
1: yeah that's amazing and it's really inspiring as i'm just thinking about how i could do that and mm. you know i think that uh that's something I could really take to heart. I really, I really love what you shared right there about using your blog to be a a window into who you are for anybody that wanted to look in that window. That uh, it's pretty powerful.
0: This word shame, I've defined it in a lot of different ways over the years. My co- most common definition right now, like if someone says, uh, "Well, I've never really had any shame," I say, "Have you ever felt the urge to hide anything?" Yeah, that's what shame is. Shame is the urge to hide something about yourself, and so if i can if i can model being shameless by not hiding things about myself and encourage others in that same way then then i want to do that that's something that i can offer
1: model being shameless i like that yeah. that resonated for me right there for sure i found it interesting kelly in in the book to note the many expressions of love and grace that ellie was shown when he began unhiding. There's a quote in the book where you wrote, Hurt can be a bridge connecting people. You can tell us anything and we'll meet you in it. Mm -hmm. It was really cool to see how that happened for Ellie with the people around him. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea?
0: Yeah. I mean I think that the you know the thing that keeps us so hidden is the assumption that people will sort of meet our authenticity with shock or horror. Or judgment. And the truth is, some people will. And I talk a lot about this idea of wise vulnerability as you're starting to sort of like emerge and share more of yourself, being wise about who you're sharing more of yourself with. Frankly, I think it's really smart to begin on hiding with people who you can trust to be graceful with you, you know, to appreciate that you're sharing more. I know one of the more powerful experiences for somebody is when they share something that they've never shared before. And the person they're sharing it with looks back and says, I love you more right now than I've ever loved you, mm. right? Your authenticity, your courage, your bravery in this moment just makes me love you more than anything about what you've done or your past or anything like that. And that's a powerful moment of grace. And so Ellie gets to experience it because he's unhiding himself with these three people who have been so essential His best friend, former teacher, pastor, priest, and, uh, and they give him that kind of grace to, to love him even more because he's had courage to show up. Yeah.
1: And it, I feel like it doesn't always have to be someone that's close to us mm. that we can reveal to or unhide to, if, no, if, it if doesn't. there's a, if, if the feeling is right and, it, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's somebody that doesn't have any biases toward us that you just mm-hmm. feel comfortable, you know, right. unhiding to, I think that that it can also go that way. I sort of had a, an experience relating to that as I was reading the book, mm-hmm. you know, where somebody asked me, how are you doing? And, and in my mind, I thought, well, the, the last 1000 times anybody's asked me that question, I've sort of said, oh, I'm fine. Now okay. everything's good. Yeah. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, this one time, it sort of resonated as this mm-hmm. is an opportunity
0: for me to practice what I'm what I'm learning here yeah. in this book. That's really cool. That's really cool. I love Thank you for saying that. I I, I do think we... We think, you know, what well, must be the person I spend the most time with is the person that I'm going to be most likely to, to start hiding with. But I think you're right. I think we can sort of trust our instincts about who's going to have the most grace, right? Who's going to be most understanding. And it might really surprise you when you ask yourself that question, who would have the most grace if I told them that? It might be somebody totally different than you would typically think of going out and having a beer with, for instance. So I, I really appreciate you putting your finger on that.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: Can I tell a quick story? Yeah, yeah, please. Before we, yeah. If I can tell a quick story, because I want, I do also want to speak to the folk who are, <laughs> I just know, like going, yeah. But what about the times you get it wrong, right? Or what about the people who do react badly? The most powerful stories that's ever been told to me, told by a young man named Nick Santostaso. It's his story, and I'll probably not do it justice. But he's a young man. He's a public speaker. The condition he has has left him with one arm and one finger, and. He told us a story at a conference about boarding a plane first, Mm. one of those planes where you get to choose your seats and uh, he gets to go first because he's a person with a handicap. Gets on the plane, the flight attendant says something like, hey, full flight, you're going to have people next to you real soon. You're you're in the best seat, so it's going to fill up here and uh, get yourself comfortable. People start to board the plane and they start to pass him for worse seats because they look at him and they do not want to sit next to him. And he said, I was looking out the window. Because I didn't want them to see my tears. When suddenly I realized, Nick, your body isn't working against you. It's working for you. It's weeding out the people that you don't want in your life. Right. Right. And, and that's what we're doing with our authenticity. That's what we're doing when Ooh. we avoid, is we're weeding out the people we don't want in our life. Right. We are bravely stepping into that, that breach where we are maybe going to feel pretty crummy because somebody reacts badly at first, but it's going to tell us a little more about whether or not this is a person who's going to be along for the ride. And so I think I just appreciate Nick's story so much. I think it once a day, at least. Oh, right. I'm weeding out the people I don't want in my life. Okay. All right. That's helpful. So I just share that story with listeners to, to encourage them as well.
1: Yeah. He, he uses the term, it's a filter. His authenticity is a filter. I've heard him tell that exact story a few times, Kelly, and it, uh, it's very powerful for sure, yeah. So there's this quote here that I starred as well that I thought was really interesting that I wanna ask you about. You mm-hmm. said, longing to understand someone may be the purest expression of love. The opposite of love is, isn't hate, it's hiding yourself from someone else so that you can never be known. And the completion of love is seeking to know someone in return. Mm-hmm. Is that what real connection is?
0: Yeah. I don't know if, if you can think of a moment in your life where you just had the experience that this person just really wants to know me. They don't want to know the good things. They just want to get to know me. And I can't imagine anything that feels closer to what most of us would describe as love than just being in the center of somebody's attention and their curiosity. And they just want to get to know you better. And so as I'm writing this book, I'm, I'm putting myself in Ellie's shoes and realizing that he's really deprived Rebecca of the opportunity to love him by hiding. He's rebuffed her curiosity. He's pushed her away. He's kept things hidden. And so this idea that, that he could be in the process of unhiding, giving her an opportunity to love and then to reciprocate as well, to me, it seems like the most really powerful thing we can do.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Super powerful. And, and I think about those moments in my life where I've really felt that, that somebody just really wanted mm. to,
0: to know me. I get uncomfortable to be completely honest with you. And I think it's part of why I chose to be a therapist because as a therapist, you're the one who's showing the interest and it's not supposed to come back at you. And there's some safety in that, right? And what that reveals, so someone's genuinely expressing curiosity to me. They really want to get to know me. And there's some mental clock I have internally that goes, oh, they've been been curious about me now for 15 minutes, right? Like, And and I think what that's revealing is a sort of a continued self-rejection in me right? Like I feel uncomfortable being loved so well. Surely I don't deserve 20 minutes of somebody wanting to get to know me, right? And so I think it love reveals the places where we are still rejecting ourselves. Love doesn't care about those spots, but we do. So we go, oh, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this anymore. So it sounds easy in practice. Oh yeah, it feels great when somebody loves you. And also it starts to get a little uncomfortable. Because it's going to start to reveal the places where you don't love yourself.
1: Love reveals the places where we are still rejecting ourselves. That right, was a valuable right. insight. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was such a cool part of the book right there where you just describe that the opposite of love isn't hate. It's hiding yourself from someone so that you can mm. never be known. Right. Mm-hmm. And just uh, what happens sure. when you open up and, uh, and reveal and create that mm-hmm. deep intimacy that comes from that level of communication, right? That level of interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Kelly, you summarize a main lesson of the story with this. You say you can either spend your life making your dreams come true, or you can allow your dreams to become truer. Mm. What does it mean to allow our dreams to become truer?
0: Mm. I think it comes back to that a conversation we were having about the quality of our dreams on this side of the river and the, the quality of our dreams on the other side of the river, right? We can keep chasing happiness. We can keep chasing security. We can keep chasing control. We can keep chasing power. We can keep chasing adoration. Those are dreams most of us want to chase. Or instead of engaging in the constant chasing of those dreams and then the constant Failure to to reach them because all those things are impermanent things that will never be, never be around forever. Happiness, control, power, security. We can allow the very nature of our dreams to shift to more enduring things that we can experience and enjoy and enter into, regardless of how life is going. Joy, resilience, presence, bravery curiosity, love, and these are the sorts of things that we can actually choose in any moment. And so I think it goes back to that, that the the nature of the things we chase earlier in life and our opportunities to let those, the hopes be transformed into something more enduring and meaningful.
1: Super powerful. Really, really, really amazing. I mean, I got so much out of reading this And one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you about this and what I really wanted to sort of unhide in this conversation with you is that I am Elijah Campbell. I feel like there are so many things that you wrote about him that just resonated directly to me. Mm. I noted five things that came to mind. You said, loneliness is our greatest wound and our most dependable defense. Mm -hmm. as a kid, I was not one of the cool kids in grammar school or high school. I was never in like the in crowd. Um, I wasn't a good athlete until a little bit later. And so I don't know that I would say I had a lonely childhood, but I guess that's probably a fair word to use. Mm -hmm. And so it's my wound, but it's also a defense. Another thing you wrote that resonated was my life has been organized around self-preservation. Right. Mm-hmm. Like as a kid, my mom was a yeller. She yelled all the time and, and I would just disconnect from it because that's all I could do. Right. I couldn't control it. I couldn't yeah, really right. affect it, but I could disconnect from it. That's right, and in, in life, like I've always said that I value harmony as an mm-hmm. important, as an important yeah. thing. I want yeah.
0: harmony. I just don't want to have, mm-hmm. I just don't want to suffer. Right. Yes. Boy, um, that's, that's Ellie, isn't it? Just- right. Trying to maintain harmony at all times at the cost of honesty and the truth and authenticity. That's right. Yeah.
1: Right, right. There's a part in there that says, I'm a private person, not evasive, not scared, just private. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of people that know me well would describe me in that way, that, mm-hmm. that I am, I'm pretty yeah. private. Sometimes I'm a tough nut to crack, not really evasive yeah. or scared, but mm-hmm. just a little bit of a tough nut to crack. There are not many problems in life that I haven't been able to outsmile, outsmart, or outwork.
0: Mm, that one's autobiographical for what it's worth. Okay. <laughs> those, great. That's those are my MOs as well, if that that, if that resonated with you.
1: That resonated for sure. I feel like self-reliance is my strength, but yes. it's also, it's also my challenge. Right. I don't need anybody else to help me. Like, I got it, right? Like I'm good. That's I got, right. I got this. I can handle it. I can outsmile uh-huh. it, I can outsmart it, or I can just outwork it. Whatever Uh-oh. the challenge is, I can do it, right? I've always felt that yeah. I can do it feeling. Yes. And then Kelly, this line was shared with Ellie by his grandfather. He says, uh, I think you've been depending on your secrecy to maintain your security. Mm. And that one was mm-hmm. like, that was like a gut punch mm. moment in reading the books, So I think those five lines give you an insight into my connection to Ellie. Yes. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective as a professional in this, in this field, like how is this mindset costing me in my
0: life? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for bravely modeling for all of us the willingness to name those things and to be authentic about those things. I know, I feel like the power in that for someone like yourself, who's so so well-respected, that has a healing power for those who are listening. And I really appreciate that. I think I'd like to like come at it from the human angle rather than the, the professional angle. I, honestly, as you were reading those five themes, and I mentioned one of them, I realized how truly personal this book is and how much i mean the things that happened to ellie not necessarily but the the methods of protection that he's wrestling with yeah absolutely that's me too your question is what is it costing you what is it costing you so let's start let's start with ellie what was it costing ellie do you think in the book in the story like when you think about the parts that moved you what was his secrecy costing him i think
1: one thing for sure is connection it cost him connection. real connection, connection yeah, yeah. that he found with Benjamin yeah. Yeah. through the story, connection
0: that he lost and might have found with Rebecca. I think you're putting your finger right on it. You know, I think it goes back to that idea of belonging. And we were talking about proxies of worth. We look around and go, well, what's it, what's it going to take for me to belong to you all? I'll do that thing. I think there's this just this sneaky, painful emptiness that happens when we achieve like a pseudo belonging by being what we think will will get us accepted or Mm -hmm. being what we think will engender the least rejection or doing what we think will create the most acceptance because we know at some level that we're not being accepted, that we don't belong. But this persona that we created is what's being accepted in what's belonging. So when we talk about loneliness as our greatest wound and also our greatest defense, it's like you can outwardly look like you've achieved an awful lot of belonging and acceptance. But inwardly, if you know you got there by hiding parts of yourself, you're still inside of that belonging, very, very lonely, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the cost is trying to solve our loneliness in a way that just multiplies it that we can't really become unlonely until we become unhidden, and see that we're be, we belong and we're accepted and we're celebrated now for the fullness of who we are, not just the convenient parts. Right? But when you were talking earlier, I thought like, man, my mo is my belief deep down, right? That that painful wound thing is that I am accepted because I'm helpful and easy and I give a lot, right? And if people really knew how self-preservational I am and how selfish I am and how nasty I can be in my head that people wouldn't really want me around. Right. And and the truth is there's a filtering happening there when I'm starting to show up and be more honest about those things is that some people will not want me around. One of the most painful parts of finding true belonging is the grief of losing some of the belonging we we hoped we had or thought we had or tried to have by by being hidden. So I think you when you say connection for Ellie, I think you're putting your finger right on what it's costing us to be hidden. It's costing us true belonging, where we know that we are received and and accepted and celebrated for the fullness of who we are, not just the parts that we've decided to show.
1: Hmm. Being accepted for the fullness of who we are, right? Not fullness just the parts it, yeah. we've decided to show. Yeah, I feel like, uh, that can be a little bit of a scary, oh. a scary thing. Cause like the fullness of who we are for probably anybody
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, mm-hmm. has some messiness to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah, I run a large sales organization that has lots of young entrepreneurs that aspire Mm -hmm. to be great at what they do and become high achievers and have a nice lifestyle. And I'm supposed to be this example of everything Mm -hmm. that they might want one day. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And the reality is that I have all the same Mm
0: -hmm.
1: challenges and difficulties that everybody else does both professionally and personally, but they aren't part of my like public persona. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. I just had this image of part of our job as leaders is to help our people achieve everything that they want to achieve. But I think the next level of leadership is helping them to evolve the things that they want to achieve, you know, and to, to grow into deeper wants and a deeper vision for their lives. And, And I think like what I hear you saying right now is that this is, this is an evolution in your leadership. And it doesn't come at the cost of the first part, you know, it's not that I will become less adept at helping you achieve everything you want to achieve. It's a both and I can do that the way I've always done it. And let's talk about how, what your wants are and how they can evolve and deepen and grow the way mine are, right? Mm -hmm. That's powerful leadership. And that's what I hear you growing into in this moment.
1: Yeah. And, And I do take solace in what we talked about earlier, the, like the, the grace and support that people gave Ellie as he began to
0: unhide. That's right. That's right. And I'll tell you, like, I don't know how, do you remember how old, I'll tell you my story and then you can tell me yours if you can think of it. I was 27, I think, when I walked out of my apartment one morning with a a young family and a relatively new wife and a one-year-old son And I laid my head against the brick wall of my apartment building on the way to my car and my commute and said to myself, I can't do it one more day. Like all the pretending, the exhaustion of putting on the show, like I can't do this anymore. And and I would say that most of us, by the time we're getting into our late 20s or early 30s, if someone could look at us and go, isn't it exhausting to be pretending? I think... Most of us would be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And to have somebody actually name it and somebody that we could actually connect with about that would be such a relief. Now here I am, I'm 46. And if someone 20 years ago would have given me the opportunity to just put my finger on that and and suggest perhaps that maybe, maybe we don't have to pretend as much as we do, it would have been such a relief. Such a relief. Mm. Now here I am just at 45, trying to learn that myself. yeah (laughs) so i don't know i I don't know if that resonates with you like an early moment where you're like oh there's a lot of work to keep all of these personas in the air so to speak
1: Mm. i feel like that gets harder over time Mm. and how do i do that now and related to that i guess i would also want to ask you is there usually a catalyst for change that
0: precedes all of this Mm. well in the book it was rebecca And this isn't this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first 10% of the book, Rebecca leaves, right? And for him, that's the the catalyst. So I will tell you that the general rule is that when your particular form of protecting yourself, whether it's hiding or being aggressive or being controlling, whatever it is, when your particular form of protecting yourself starts to create more suffering than it prevents, is usually the point where things start to shift. So If they didn't shift in that way, you'd just keep protecting. (laughs) Like you're basically, you're doing rational mental math. Oh, my hiding is saving me this rejection. It's saving me this potential lack of belonging or whatever. And it's not really costing me that much. So why don't I just keep doing it, right? It's when that hiding starts to create more problems than it solves that we start to see ourselves actually consider doing something about it. And that's, in, in Ellie's case, it was specifically his wife going, done. I'm not going to let you smile through one more episode of dishonesty. I'm out of here. Right. And it's what he needed. And so maybe one thing that could come from this episode for folks is that they don't have to get to that point of the suffering starting that way. They go, oh, I see that horizon coming. Right. And maybe I can start to make this shift a little bit sooner. Generally, most of us will have to, you know, sort of like I was driving down the street about six months ago and I've been trying to save my kids some pain in various ways by guiding them and they're ignoring me because I'm an old man who doesn't know what he's talking about, you know. And I just I shouted in the car, oh, they're just gonna have to learn it for themselves the hard way. Right. <laughs> Which I think is probably true for most of us. Like we have to go through the suffering in order to reverse our method of protecting. Um, but if somebody's listening and and they feel like that horizon's close and they want to get an early start on it, maybe that's one of the ways this this conversation serves them.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I hope that a lot of people listen. I hope that uh, this can circulate into both of our networks mm. far and wide and that uh, this impacts a lot of people. For anybody that wants to follow you, Dr. Kelly, how can they, how can they stay up to date with what you're putting out?
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of places right now. DrKelleyFlanagan.com is always a good a good location. DrKelleyFlanagan.com. I've also, where's it at? Like here, the Inner Gathering. I started a substack called the inner gathering uh where i'm writing my next uh non book in public rather than doing it with a publisher and getting editorial feedback uh, i'm giving my readers a chance to edit it as we go which is a really cool experience and it's this sort of essentially it's a summary of everything i have learned about the ways that we protect and how we can actually work with those protections internally over the course of our uh, our awakening from the hiding to the fighting to the ruling, we do the controlling. How do we manage to um, be aware of those things and and do something different with them? So that's it. At Substack, Doctor, I think it's Doctor Kelly Flanagan. dot is the place to go to for that.
1: Outstanding, outstanding. And just uh, before we put a bow on top of this one, I just want to ask one more time here if there's anybody else out there, Doctor Kelly, that yeah. Resonates with Elijah Campbell the way I have, and Mm. they're older like me, and they, you know, they've habits are hard boiled. Like, yeah, what are the steps to take to to
0: change and to Mm. evolve? Mm. So I always say the steps are are threefold. The first is awareness. The first is is bringing awareness to the various ways in which you're hiding. I think that's a a really power. I mean, go get the book, right? And, and read Elijah's story, read Ellie's story, and let that just grow your awareness of the, the small little ways that you're hiding in your life, maybe some of the big ways, right? Number one, so awareness. Number two is compassion. So what happens is we've pushed a lot of our experience out of our awareness because we don't think it's worthy of love and belonging. We've, we rejected ourselves. And so as you start to allow some of your experience into your awareness, as you've powerfully done here today saying, I'm aware that I hide a lot more than I realized. I called it privacy. I called you know, all these things, called it harmony, but it's hiding. Wow. Like that's a powerful awareness. But the first thing you'll want to do, anybody listening, when you become more aware of these things is you're going to want to push it back out of your awareness. I don't really want to pay attention to that. That makes me feel terrible, right? Ooh, that mm-hmm. sounds like there's a lot of work to do. Flanagan keeps talking about pain. I don't want to deal with my pain, right? The next step is to begin to cultivate a sense of compassion for the things that we become aware of. That's how we keep it in our awareness to work with it, right? And part of that compassion is beginning to connect it to our story, to see, oh, I was once a little boy who had to hide you, did a beautiful job of that. By the way, Dan, when you said, my mom was a yeller and my way of dealing with it was disconnecting. Like it was all I could do. I didn't have control of the situation. It was the only way to be safe and to be in a little bit of control. That was a beautiful way of cultivating a bit of compassion for where your hiding started right and when we feel compassion for the the little one in us who first had to hide to survive all of a sudden it's not some secretive thing we're doing to get away with something it was a survival tool we used it was resilient it was it was savvy we needed to do it so we bring it into awareness We cultivate compassion for it by connecting it to our story and the younger version of us that needed to do it. And then the third step is always vulnerability. Once we have been able to hold it in awareness and get to know it a little bit, we start to choose people to tell about it. And what we discover is that as soon as we tell someone about it, the shame about it begins to lift a little bit, right? Because shame is sort of fueled by hiding as well. It is the urge to hide, but it is also fueled by more hiding. So our shame sort of like grows on itself as we hide. As we begin to unhide and be more vulnerable, it begins to shrink, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to like, we want to pick up steam in that vulnerability too and keep sharing and keep discussing it because our our shame will shrink more and more It get easier and easier to talk about it. Doesn't mean you won't have a vulnerability hangover from time to time, (laughs) right? Like, oh, I shared that with this person. I wonder what they think of me now. Right, 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 but then you get together with that person the next time you have more fun than you ever had with them, and you realize, "Oh, I guess they you know are okay with me having shared that, right, And so now now that sense of vulnerability you become more and more comfortable with it, so awareness, compassion, and vulnerability, and that's probably a long answer to your question, but I wanted to, to give folks a practical sense of the progression as they they think about doing this.
1: That's super helpful. Yeah, this has been really, really amazing. I do have one other question that only people who read the yep. book are going to get Dr.
0: Kelly. Yep. And it's, um, how do you spell supercilious? <laughs> in real, like real, uh, that's so good. S U P E R S I L L Y U S. There Super you go. Uh, that's that, right. I have no idea how to spell it in real life. <laughs> that is
1: exactly right. I think it really summarizes a lot of what, uh, A lot of us Mm -hmm. experience uh, as we go through life, not being who we really are, want to be right. And so there's so much, so many valuable lessons came out of reading the book for me. And I hope uh, everybody got some great stuff out of our conversation today. I sincerely Mm -hmm. appreciate you making the time to have this deep and powerful conversation. Thank
0: you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for leading the way, man. I'm blessed.
1: Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Everyone, wow. I hope that this conversation impacted you as profoundly as the book and talking with Kelly has impacted me here today. I think about this theme that our past is behind us, but it's also always within us. And the idea of paying attention to how you feel, right? Noticing the body when you feel that tightness, that resistance to something, that oftentimes that is our past pushing into the present. It's a moment of opportunity. It can be a bridge to greater connection, intimacy, when we're able to notice it. And in that moment of noticing, to be able to move through it. Ellie, Elijah Campbell, in the story, Hid, the reality of his existence, of his life, so that he wouldn't upset others. That's what his purpose, his motivation was actually something not bad, but that caused him the reality of missed connections with some of the most important people in his life. I think about this idea of proxies for worth, how we all want to belong, and we look around as kids to see what is being Rewarded, what is being recognized, what is being loved, and we start to seek those things and try to become those things so that we can also belong. That in that process, we're creating a false version of ourself. The metaphor in the story is the bridge, right? Do we stay on this side where we experience things like happiness and security and control and power, all things that are impermanent in real life, right? Or do we get to the other side where we learn to value and want different things that are more enduring? Joy, beyond just happiness, but joy. Resilience, presence, bravery, curiosity, love. Just thought that was a great metaphor in the story. And to get there, we have to no longer be attached to everything going our way. We have to develop what Dr. Kelly called wise vulnerability. I love the example from Nick Santo that authenticity becomes a filter in our life for who are the people that we truly want to have around. And the deep connection that is established when someone really wants to know you and gets to know you through you revealing your truth. Wow. So much more. That we could talk about get the book the unhiding of elijah campbell dr kelly's previous books are called lovable and true companions follow his blog as he mentioned at dr kelly flanagan dr kellyflanagan.com if this episode has impacted you number one i would love to hear from you please write to me about what you experienced find me on social media or on the podcast webpage at changinglivespodcast.com. And second is share this. Please share this because I feel like this is the kind of conversation that can really impact a lot of other people. This is something that I wish I had read a little earlier that I feel like is very valuable. And I hope that you've found it to be as valuable as I have and that this milestone 400th episode has been truly meaningful to you. Thank you supporting this podcast and for listening to this or watching this here today thanks for listening if you got value from today's episode please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device for access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit ChangingLivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit ChangingLivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.